So we're reading Hosea chapter 11 um, and the first 11 verses. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, we are going to begin today with a quiz. Um, what do the following characters have in common? They'll be on the screen. Rapunzel, Harry Potter, King Arthur, Shasta from C.S. Lewis's The Horse and His Boy. That one's a bit niche. Uh, Oliver Twist and Hercules. And by the way, if you're thinking, well, which version of Rapunzel or Hercules, think of the Disney film and you'll, you'll be all right. So turn to the person next to you and see if you can work it out. What links all of those six characters? Okay? I, um, beforehand, I asked the PA team and they said, they're all fictional, which is uh, technically true, I don't know. Uh, does anyone think they've got it? No one's going to be very brave. I, I'll tell you what I, I think the link is anyway. <laughs> All of them are raised in some kind of poverty or drudgery or slavery without knowing who their parents are, and it turns out they're the children of rich or famous or powerful people, and discovering that changes their life forever. Did anyone get something like that? No one. Yes. Howie, well done, Howie. Amazing. 
Um, Rapunzel is enslaved, coming back on the screen, Rapunzel is enslaved by the evil witch mother Gothel, not showing she's, knowing she's a royal princess. Harry Potter is kept in a cupboard under the stairs at Four Privet Drive before learning he's a wizard. Arthur is secretly the heir of England's throne, but doesn't know it until he pulls the sword from the stone. Shasta is the secret son of the King of Arkenland. Oliver Twist is the orphaned heir of the rich Edwin Leaford. Hercules, unknowingly, at least in the Disney film, is the son of Zeus. Why do we keep telling this story? From ancient Greek myth to medieval French court literature to Victorian English novels to Hollywood movies, we love this story. The child who is in slavery and until one day all is revealed, he or she is actually rich or royal or even the son of a god. Why do we keep telling that story? We're in week two of our series, Declared to be the Son of God. As we head to Easter Sunday and the death and resurrection of Jesus is in the front of our minds, as it should be all year round, really, we're exploring, as Michael said, something Paul says in the first chapter of his letter to the Romans. He says that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was declared with power to be the Son of God. And each week we're going to think about one aspect of what that means. Really, we're going to be looking at one biblical figure who is called the Son of God, and and see about what that adds to our picture of Jesus. Last week we saw that Adam was called the Son of God, and Jesus therefore is the head of a new humanity, the beginning of a new creation. Today we're going to see that Israel is also called the Son of God, and we're going to see how Jesus brings us true redemption. But we're going to begin where all those other stories began, by seeing the enslaved children of God in Hosea chapter 11. So if you close it, do open it again, and there's an outline on the inside of your notice sheet. You might be thinking that's a rather strange title to give to this passage in Hosea, the enslaved children of God, because it begins with a glorious expression of freedom based on fatherly grace. Look at verse 1 with me again. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Now Hosea there is clearly referring back to the Exodus when God brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. At that point Israel wasn't really a nation at all. It was a family, a big tribe that had grown massively but was still under slavery and under the might of Pharaoh. That might be what, what God means by calling Israel a child. They were new, they were small, they were helpless, they needed an awful lot of care. And yet God had big plans for this small family. Look with me on the screen at the words that God gave Moses to say to Pharaoh back in Exodus chapter 4. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. Israel, this young child, this newborn nation, is God's firstborn son, his heir. Remember what we saw last week about what that means. We saw last week that Adam was God's son, that human beings were made to be sons and daughters of God, resembling him in his majesty, representing him in his rule, made in his image and his likeness. 
so the whole creation could look at human beings and see a reflection of the God who made the whole universe. Well, God's plan begins with this nation. His plan is to restore one nation to be that representative to the whole world, to image him to the other nations, to be his son once again, the thing that Adam failed to be. That is why every time Moses tells Pharaoh to let his people go, he adds the reason for it. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Let my son go so that they may serve me. He says it again and again and again to Pharaoh. Let him be restored, in other words, to true sonship. Out of slavery where they served Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt, to the promised land where they might serve the true gods. It's worth pausing there and thinking about that a little bit. Here's a question for you, a slightly easier quiz question than the one I gave you at the beginning. What is the opposite of slavery? It's an easy one, isn't it? Freedom, right? Freedom is the opposite of slavery. But what does freedom mean? We tend to define freedom as the ability to do whatever we want. That's our society, our world's definition of freedom, isn't it? Freedom from any external constraints whatsoever. Freedom to cast off the shackles. Freedom to be whatever we want to be. But God does not see it anyway. Uh, Sorry, God does not see it that way. The opposite of slavery is not total autonomous freedom to define ourselves. The opposite of slavery is sonship. It's freedom to be who we were designed to be, to worship God and to serve him, to live for him and to represent him to others. You see, true freedom is not found in doing what we want to do, but doing what we're meant to do. I've used this analogy before, but consider the fish who has an insatiable craving to escape the confines of the water and live on land and thinks of it as glorious freedom. What will it find when it does that? Well, it will find misery and death. It will find it cannot live well. It will find itself trapped, unable to return to the water. Indeed, it will find slavery. And the only path back to freedom is by the gracious hand of someone who will pick it up and return it to the water so it can be not what it wants to be, but what it was meant to be, what it was designed to be, and there it can flourish. That was what God did for Israel. Through mighty fatherly grace, through plagues and judgments and the sacrifice of a lamb in their place, God's gracious hand reached down, scooped up his enslaved people and brought them back to the water, back to sonship, back to a way of living where they could flourish and grow and fulfill the design for their lives, back to serving and worshipping him. That was the plan. That the children of God would be freed from their slavery in Egypt to become sons mature representatives of God, worthy heirs of the promised land, those following in their father's footsteps. And in this passage in Hosea, we see that God did absolutely everything possible to lead them in that. Look at verse three. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. Or verse four, I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. It's an interesting image, that one, isn't it? The language of cords and ties maybe doesn't suggest freedom to us. It suggests bondage and slavery. 
We don't like being tied down to anything, do we? But that's because we have the wrong view of freedom, like the fish who wants to be free from the water. Freedom is not about having no ties at all. It's about being bound with love to a kind and gentle father, one who takes the yoke of slavery from our neck and returns us to a good and nourishing way of life. Fatherly grace ought to have led to free sonship. But instead, it was met with childish stubbornness. Any parent of a toddler who, or anyone who's ever been charged with looking after a toddler can perhaps recognize the language of verse 2. The more I called Israel, the further they went from me. I remember the first time I took Ben and Isaac, my two sons, down to the shoreline on the beach, down to the waves. We were on holiday somewhere. And Ben had been down on the beach in the waves before. He never really wanted to go in. He was a bit scared of the water as a toddler. It's fine now. Um, but Ben was a bit older, and Isaac was toddling around, so I thought I'd give it another go. Uh, we walked down to the waves, and I said to them both, now just keep hold of my hand, and we'll just go in for a little paddle. We'll just get our, our feet wet. At that precise moment, Ben let go of my hand and ran screaming with terror back up the beach. I turned and shouted, Ben, Ben, come back! But the more I called, the further he went from me. And as I was calling, uh, calling Isaac let go of my hand and ran screaming with joy right into the water. <laughs> Isaac, come back! But the more I called, the further he went from me. And I was left in the middle, briefly wondering which ridiculous child I should run after first. <laughs> I went for Isaac, and we obviously found Ben at some point. But if you know kids, this is what they do. We have, we have to teach them to run away from their parents. We have rebellion baked into who we are from their beginning. Children stubbornly run away from their parents, away from the source of comfort and safety, and towards danger. And as they do so, they entertain this wild idea that they can be free if they just run away. But every parent knows that as long as they are stubbornly running away... They're in grave danger. And this is what Israel did too. Read on with me from verse 2. The more I called Israel, the further they went from me, they sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. Having been freed from Egypt, freed from the slavery of serving cruel masters and false gods to serve a kind and gracious father, what did they do? Well, they ran straight back to cruel masters and false gods, the idol of Baal. In verse 3, God says, they didn't realize it was I who healed them. If you have time this week, go back and read Hosea chapter 2, and you'll see how this happened. Israel, who'd been given the promised land and abundant blessing by God, started attributing that blessing to Baal instead. They started giving him the credit. Oh yes, Baal has been so good to us, hasn't he? He's given us the harvest and the new wine and the grain and the oil. Those were things that God the Father had provided, and yet they gave the credit to somebody else. Again, we can see that in children, can't we, as they get a little bit older? You never do anything for me. You're always so mean to me. My friends understand me better than you ever will. Jamie's parents let him do whatever he wants. Why can't you be more like them? I wish I'd been born in another family. Now, no human parent is perfect. Some of, some of us are very imperfect indeed. And sometimes when our kids have a go at us, they might have a point. But that cannot be said for Israel's gods. Unfailingly kind and generous, incredibly patient, beautifully consistent, 
And yet Israel acted like willful toddlers, like stubborn children, rejecting their father gods. Which is why, although God is supremely patient, there must be fatherly discipline. Look at verse 5. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. See, when Israel were first freed from Egypt, they were given a covenant. That covenant held out blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Like a consistent father who knew how to discipline his children, God told them beforehand precisely what would happen if they continued to reject him. And now, after bearing with that rejection patiently for centuries, God brings about precisely the discipline that he said would happen. You can go and look at Deuteronomy 29 and see this is exactly what he said he would do. There'd be a return to exile. There'd be defeats by enemies. And most chillingly of all, God himself would shut his ears to their cries for help. When they called to God from their slavery in Egypt, God heard their cries and came and rescued them. But now he says he will not. He will hand them over to the nations whose gods they worship. That is, I think, why it's appropriate to see Israel as the enslaved children of God in this passage. Although they are free from slavery in Egypt, yet they are still enslaved to idolatry, to rebellion. As verse 7 puts it, they are determined to turn from me. They have a bent and a bias towards evil. And Israel's story is our story too. Adam and Eve's story, it's our world story in microcosm. As Paul put it in Titus 3 on the screen, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. See, our childish stubbornness towards God's fatherly grace reveals us not to be sons, but to be slaves and undeserving of any place in God's family. And yet Hosea 11 hasn't finished. There is yet more fatherly grace. Read with me from verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man the Holy One among you, I will not come in wrath. See, in the middle there, God says he is God and not man. I think what that means is that long past the moment where human patience would be exhausted, long past the breaking point of people like you and me, God's fatherly compassion remains. Although his people deserve punishment and exile, and indeed they did experience that, God had not given up on them yet. He was not going to bring the final end, the final judgment on his people. He had not yet given up on humanity. He had not yet given up on his plan to restore people to sonship. He had not given up his creation design. And so even as the people do go into exile under his fatherly discipline, God adds yet another promise, verse 10. They will follow the Lord. 
he will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. It's a rather odd image, isn't it? A lion roars, and in response, this huge flock of birds takes off in fright, but not to fly away from him, but to fly towards him. These children of God come from the midst of every nation and come back to Israel, but now something is different, something has changed. Now, verse 10, they will follow the Lord instead of following Baal. They will hear their father's voice. They will respond to his word. They will be bound to him by ties of kindness. And they'll be settled, verse 11, in their homes. Not like a cast out slave, but like a settled son. They'll belong with their gods. This is a promise that one day when the lion roars, the sons of God will be truly free. And that brings us to consider Jesus the free son of God. You may know that Hosea 11 is quoted in the New Testament, but rather strangely. It's just after the wise men visit the toddler Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Look on the screen with me at these words from Matthew 2. So the wise men leave, and it says, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, over the years, many people, quite understandably, have been a bit confused by Matthew's logic here. Matthew says that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Joseph and Mary didn't return to Nazareth by a direct route, but went and spent some time in Egypt to avoid the anger of Herod, who intended to kill him. And Matthew says that that indirect journey fulfills Hosea 11 verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, perhaps you can understand why people have thought over the years that Matthew's stretching it a little bit. Hosea 11 verse 1 didn't really read like a prophecy, did it? It was referring to a historical event, the Exodus. And how does the infant Jesus just going into Egypt and going out again really sort of fulfill the Exodus? It wasn't sort of the same thing, was it, at all? Yes, there's the similarity between Pharaoh and Herod trying to kill the firstborn, but apart from that, they're completely different situations. Some people have accused Matthew of playing a bit fast and loose with Old Testament scripture. Israel was in Egypt and came out, and Jesus was in Egypt and came out. Therefore, Jesus is a bit like Israel, you know, if you sort of squint a bit and don't look too closely. But I hope spending some time in Hosea 11 has convinced you that actually Matthew knows precisely what he's doing. He's not just spotting some kind of superficial similarity between Israel and Jesus. He's actually working at a very deep level of understanding. Why did God bring Israel out of Egypt? Let my people go so that they might worship me. He brought him out of Egypt so that they would be his son, so that they would be free from the slavery of idolatry, the service of cruel masters and false gods, so that they would worship him and serve him and image him to the world. So that the whole world would see what a free son of God really looked like. And so as the infant Jesus comes out of Egypt to begin his life in the promised land of Israel, that is precisely what we do see. We see even the child Jesus behaving like a grown-up son. 
Do you remember when his parents lost him that day in Jerusalem? And three days later, they found him again in the temple, amazing the scribes with his understanding. And when they questioned him, he said, well, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Here is a young man who is completely at home with God, completely devoted to him, totally uninterested in idolatry. A man devoted to honoring the father in every area of his life. The true son of God, a free man in a world of slaves. And that brings us to a key conversation he has with his fellow Israelites. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8? The page numbers will be on the screen. 1074. Uh, in this passage, Jesus has been speaking uh, near the temple. Uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles, and lots of Jewish people have heard his message and believed in him. His sermon's been a roaring success. He's gathered a crowd of people around him who believe in him. Everything is going really, really well. At least, that's what it looks like from the outside. But Jesus knows that something different is going on inside their hearts. And you can tell by the way they react to what he says next. So look at verse 31 with me. To the Jews who had believed him... Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, "Uh, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we should be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Do you see Jesus' point? It's exactly what we saw in Hosea 11. Sinners are slaves. Sin is not something that is accidental. It's not something out of character. Those who rebel against God are fixed on their rebellion. They are determined, bent, biased towards sin like stubborn toddlers. That is who all of us are without Jesus. And because of that, we have no permanent place in God's family. We're not true sons. We're not at home with God. We can't represent him to the world because we don't behave like him. And so exile and wrath are what we deserve. And yet Jesus makes a stunning offer. If you listen to me, he says, then I can make you free. Here is the true son telling slaves how to find freedom. Here is the gracious hand of God reaching down to scoop the fish off the dry land and return it to the water. Here is the roar of the lion calling his people home. But Jesus sees into the hearts of the men and women who surround him. And he sees stubborn childishness. Let's read on verse 37. I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence and you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham's our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you're determined to kill me. A man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham didn't do such things. You're doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. 
for I came from God and now I'm here. I've not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God, hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. I think it's fair to say that escalated quickly, didn't it? This looked like a very successful mission indeed. This looked like lots of people had put their trust in Jesus, the true son of God, the one who does his father's will and speaks his father's words. And yet as Jesus continues to speak, their hearts are revealed. They don't want to listen to him. They don't want to follow him. They don't want to be sons of God. They want to kill the son of God, even though, verse 46, he's done nothing wrong. Or perhaps we could say precisely because he's done nothing wrong. The righteous perfection of the true Son of God has shone a spotlight into their hearts. And rather than reacting with humility and repentance, they react with resentment and hatred. Like a child who gets insanely envious when his older brother wins a school prize and hates him for it. It's irrational, it's ridiculous, it's childish. But so is sin. And we're enslaved to it. And this teaches us that slavery to sin might well come in many different shapes and sizes. In Hosea, we saw the slavery of out-and-out idolatry, didn't we? A complete, obvious, wholesale rejection of God to pursue other gods, other passions and pleasures and desires. But here we see there is another form of slavery. You see, these are devout and serious Jews gathered in Jerusalem at the temple in the name of Yahweh for the Feast of Tabernacles. They are not idolaters, at least not obviously. They take worshipping God very seriously. They take the law very seriously. They are respectable and sincere and religious, and yet they are still slaves to sin and not true sons. That's because they are simply not listening to their father. They did not listen to Jesus when he told them they were slaves and needed to be set free. They thought they were free already. After all, they weren't like those other guys, were they? They weren't like those other idolaters. They weren't like those sinners, those Gentiles, those tax collectors. These, oh, we're the good guys. We're Abraham's children. We're God's children. But they were showing precisely the same stubborn attitude in their hearts. As Jesus is calling to them, they're just running away, thinking they don't need the fatherly grace of God's thinking they could earn their sonship by trying harder, by obeying the law, by serving God so well that he would be impressed with them and that they would earn his favour and his love. In fact, they were treating God as though he were one of those cruel masters, those false gods who needed to be constantly served and impressed and mollified, who demanded much of his people and gave nothing back. They'd not listened to his testimony of fatherly grace. Instead, they were serving a cruel God of their own making who just happened to be called Yahweh. In Hosea's language, they call on the name of the Most High, but he's not going to exalt them because they too are idolaters and slaves. 
Jesus, you may know, once told a story about two sons. It's in Luke 15. One son rejected his father completely, asked for his inheritance money early, in effect told his father that he wished he was dead so that he could have his stuff. He loved what his father could give him, but he did not love his father, and he ran off like a stubborn toddler straight into danger. He lost all the money. He lost all his friends. He ended up helpless and hopeless. His willful rejection of his father ended in slavery. And yet, he came home. We'll come back to that in a minute. But there was another son in the story. A son, an older son, who'd always done the right thing. Who'd been a good boy. Who'd followed the rules. Who'd tried really, really hard. But when his rascally younger brother came home, he was absolutely furious. Look at what he said to his father. It'll be on the screen. And see if you can spot the key words. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Did you hear it? So sad, isn't it? So ironic. The older brother calls himself a slave. And he thinks that because he has slaved for his father and worked so hard, then he deserves to be a son. And he deserves to get good things from him. Give me a goat. And that idiot in there who ran away has done nothing to deserve it. And do you see, he doesn't see his father's grace because he doesn't think he needs it. And so he refuses his father's welcome and stays outside the house. And so because of this attitude, this older son has made himself like a slave outside of the home, exiled from the father. Now, under which attitude of those two sons most resonates with you? Whether you call yourself a Christian or not, which of those is most tempting? Do you find yourself itching, always wanting to run away from God's commands, to break free from his shackles, to live a life of glorious, autonomous freedom and just do whatever I want? Or do you find yourself desperately wanting to be the good boy or girl, the person who obeys God and obeys the rules, but thinking of God as a cruel slave driver who you can never do quite enough to please? Of course, one attitude will tend to lead to the other. The person who's grown up with oppressive religion, being told to follow all the rules, otherwise God will hate you, often eventually yearns to break free. Whereas the person who's lived a life of debauchery and hedonistic excess often decides to just sort their lives out by adopting punishing rules. But both, and whether you swing between one or two or not, both are a form of slavery. Neither is an expression of true sonship. But whichever attitude tempts you, or wherever you are with Jesus today, his offer still stands. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Will you turn with me finally and very briefly to Galatians chapter 4? Again, the page numbers will be on the screen. Uh, It's 1170. We 
we, we don't have time at all to examine this passage very closely. But I want to see how Paul ties together all the threads that we've seen. In this letter, in the book of Galatians, a Christian church is being tempted to go back to the law, to base their relationship with God on their obedience to his commands. And Paul calls that a kind of childishness, indeed a kind of slavery. Look at verse 1. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. There's a lot to unpack there, but basically the Galatian Christians thought that they could rely on the law to make them right with God, like the Jews in John chapter 8, but the gift of the law was never meant to do that. It never had the power to change our hearts, to make idolaters into sons. Rather, it revealed the childishness and stubbornness of our hearts. That was what the law was there to do. It either reveals it because we blatantly rebel against it, or it reveals it because we foolishly rely on it. Either way, the gift of God's law shows us to be people who, like Jesus said, are not listening to him and so remain in slavery. And so something much more is needed. We don't need more rules. We need the roar of the lion. We need the power of God to change our hearts. We need the truth to set us free. And so let's read on in verse 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. The roar of the lion turns out to be the death of a lamb. Just as the sacrificial lamb died in the place of the people in Egypt and so redeemed them out of that physical slavery, so Jesus' death in our place redeems us out of spiritual slavery. You see, as we looked at Hosea 11, you might have been wondering how on earth God could possibly keep both of his promises. He promised two things in that passage, didn't he? He promised both that he would punish his people's idolatry and that he would bring them back out of exile. He promised both righteous judgment and gracious rescue. He promised to exile people like slaves and welcome them home as sons. And if God were just a man, we'd just assume he was being inconsistent and changeable. But he's not a man, he's the most high God, so how can he possibly do both? Well, the answer is here. Jesus, the son, was born under the law, and he died under the law. He took the full punishment on our idolatry, our stubbornness, our slavery, however it was expressed. Even though he was the one who could call God Abba, Father, he bore his father's wrath for us. He was exiled from God's presence like a disobedient slave, and yet he rose from the dead. And when he did so, as Paul says in Romans 1, he was declared with power to be the Son of God. This is Jesus being sent away in punishment and yet called home from his exile. Listen to how Jesus puts it in John 14 on the eve of his death on the screen. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. 
If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. See, Jesus' resurrection is his return home, back to his father's house, welcomed and settled as a son in his rightful family home where he's meant to be all along. What does he say? He says, my father's house got loads of rooms, you know. It's not just me. God is expecting the return of many wayward sons and daughters. Jesus going, his death and resurrection in our place, prepares a place for us too. He forgives our stubbornness and rebellion. And by the gift of his spirit, he transforms our hearts to cause us once again to hear and obey the voice of our gods. To cry out, Abba, Father. To turn from our sin and slavery. And to enjoy being a son once again. Well, as we conclude, let me give you three reasons why you should accept the offer of Jesus. Why you should put your trust in him and follow him, or if you're doing so already, why you should keep doing that. Firstly, Jesus offers us a better freedom than the world offers. You see, our hearts will tell us and our society will tell us that the way to be free is to cast off God's authority, to loose ourselves from the chains and the shackles of his commands, and to go our own way. But we've been shown today that what we think of as chains and shackles are actually the bonds of kindness and the ties of love. Going our own way, doing our own thing is like the toddler sprinting into danger, the fish leaving the water, the son wasting his inheritance on the things that lead to misery. It is slavery. But if we accept the welcome of God in Jesus, we are brought into a better freedom, a new life of doing not what we want to do, but what we were always meant to do. Secondly, Jesus offers us a freer service than the drudgery of idolatrous religion. A freer service. We might be tempted to think of God as a cruel master who demands our obedience and rewards us with his favor if we're lucky. We might think that if I just work really hard for him, then he'll accept me, then I'll be a proper Christian, then everyone will see that I'm the real deal. But we've seen today that that is the bondage of a slave and not the service of a son. A mature son does work to please his father. He does love to serve him and make him smile. But he knows that he is loved not because of what he does, but simply because he's a son. And so he offers that service gladly as a response of thanksgiving and love. He is liberated to please his father, not forced to. A freer service. And finally, Jesus offers us a welcome home. Let me conclude by reading some words from the parable of the two sons that Jesus told. The first son, the wayward idolater, realizes that he is in slavery. Let's see what happens next. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out. And go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Call me a slave. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to the son 
threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your fatherly grace to us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the true son, the one who never disobeyed you, the one who always lived for you, the one who always showed you, showed us what you are like in every thought and word and deed. And thank you that he consented to be treated like a slave, to be treated like we deserve, to be punished in our place, to be exiled far from you. And thank you that he has now returned home, that he is the true son in his father's house. And thank you that by that death and that resurrection, he has opened up your home to us. That he's prepared many rooms for wayward children like us to come back home. Father, you know our hearts, you know the ways that we express our slavery and our stubbornness. Some of us will be running away from you in excess and hedonism and idolatry and just searching for pleasure and we're sorry for that. Some of us will be really striving to please you and inventing religions to make ourselves worthy for you and not really listening to you and we're sorry for that too. Thank you that you call us out of that slavery and into liberty, into freedom, into the gift of your forgiveness and the knowledge that we are truly your sons and daughters. Thank you that that means we do not have to worry or fret about our relationship with you because it is all dependent on the Son, Jesus Christ. And thank you that we can serve you in freedom. Uh, Thank you that we can be who we were meant to be slowly as your spirit changes us from the inside, that we can start to love serving you, not from what we can get out of it, but because we delight to put a smile on your face. And so would you help us to take hold of that freedom, to take hold of that forgiveness and enjoy that freedom more and more that we might be true sons and daughters and no longer slaves. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.